You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our podcast, please help out the show by becoming a patron. You can learn more by going to patreon.com slash Island. All right, before we begin, I want to thank our new patron for this week, and he goes by the name of Nicole's husband, Brian. Well, Nicole's husband. I usually refer to myself as Corinne's husband, if I'm uh, completely honest. Sounds like we're two lucky guys. Thank you so much for your support. Come join us for a live discussion on the Patreon during each airing of the uh, episode, new episode of The Curse of Oak Island, although... This week, I wasn't able to be there because I called in to work at the last minute. Some great comments on there, though. Uh, it is always fun to read what other fans think. Uh, you know, I really do enjoy doing that while the show is airing. Uh, it never fails to make me laugh either. Also, um, I'm starting to post my old scripts and my old research from past historical podcasts, not ones based on the show, but ones based on some of the history of Oak Island. And I'm posting that over there on the Patreon. So if you're interested in reading that kind of stuff, uh, you know, perusing some of Oak Island's history, you might find that cool. You know, at least I hope you do. Again, patreon.com slash digging Oak Island. And thank you, Brian. Uh, great to have you as part of the family here. Only got a couple of emails to get to this week, so let's do that. We'll start actually over on the Patreon with our friend Claude. Uh, who actually wrote me on Facebook, but he is a patron. Um, Claude, I'm going to have to edit this a little bit. <laughs> we don't want to lose our, uh, we don't want to gain that explicit tag on iTunes. Uh, but I'll, I'll read it in, in the spirit, I think you wrote it, just with the uh, colorful, colorful metaphors taken out of, uh, of your uh, email here. It says, all right, Dave, here we go. Uh, let's just say that some of the skeptics are right, that there really is a ship buried in the swamp. Why? Tell me, why did they go through all the trouble of disassembling it and burying it piece by piece so that some reality show could then uncover it piece by piece some 200 years later? Well, first of all, Claude, I, I think you wrote what you were meaning to write. Not some of the skeptics are right, but some of the true believers are right. I think the skeptics are the one who think that this idea is ridiculous. Um, here's what I would say. Uh, I think you're completely right. I mean, the thing about any such theory is this very question, right? This is where it fall, falls apart. So before I talk specifically about the ship in the swamp theory, let's sort of pull the lens back a little bit and get a bigger picture. I mean, before you start advocating for an outlandish theory such as this, right? And this is an outlandish theory. There's You can't find me a place where somebody buried a ship in between two islands, thus making it one island. This isn't something that happened all the time. It's an outlandish theory. You have to first ask yourself, if you're going to advocate for such a theory, why would anyone really do this? Does the time and effort put into making this thing happen make any sense at all, right? Uh, we have to answer that question first, I think. And let me give you another example, kind of a, a very different example, but sort of the same thing I'm saying from a different point of view, right? Look at Peter Amundsen's theory about Francis Bacon writing Shakespeare and how how he left these clues in the original folios, not only saying that Shakespeare didn't really write this, but that there is this treasure or the the answers are in the swamp or in the tree of life, you know, the whole thing. You've, you've, you've seen it all before, guys. Um, why would... <laughs> I mean, the way he points this all out and the way he extrapolates meaning from all this is fascinating, Right. Um, it's really mind blowing and almost, it almost frustrates you because it goes so long, you know, 
But it all starts to fall apart when one stops after listening to hours of this and asks oneself, why in God's name would anyone go through what had to be the years of worth of effort to do all this just to hide the fact that Bacon or his buddies, I guess, wrote Shakespeare and hid it in Oak Island? I mean, <laughs> if the whole idea was to hide it, why not then just hide it, <laughs> right? You, you see what I'm saying? Uh, and if the point of it was not, was hiding it, but yet somehow communicating it to someone in the future, right, then why do this in this nearly impossible manner, but yet a manner with which also anyone could maybe follow down the road, including a Norwegian organist? I mean, you put all this thought into this, it just doesn't make any sense. Just don't tell anybody. <laughs> Simple, right? So in my mind, those are the questions you need to answer um, before I can take a ship in the swamp seriously. And there's other questions you need to answer too, but just starting with this one. If you want to hide a, a ship, folks, here's what you do. If you don't want anybody to ever find this ship to ever see it again, you take it a few miles off the coast and you scuttle it, you stick a hole in the bottom, and you watch it sink to the bottom. And if that doesn't hide it sufficiently enough for whatever it is you're trying to do, then when the tide comes up, <laughs> you float the ship a few hundred yards offshore, and you light the darn thing on fire. Here's what you don't do. You don't put hundreds of people to work for, for what must be months and months, moving millions of tons of earth in order to bury it between two islands successfully. I mean, if you want to actually hide it, why in God's name would you bury it? Essentially leaving it there for others to find, especially in a place, I mean, it's not like you buried a giant hole, beach erosion, things could come into play here in their idea. The, the whole plan just, just makes no sense, right? You wouldn't do that. And that's just one of the reasons why, I, I you know, just a small reason why I don't believe in any of this. And as I've said many, many times before, the theory also completely and totally ignores the history of sea levels and the geography of the island and all that kind of stuff, too. Claude, to answer your question simply, they wouldn't. It makes no sense. And as you, uh, as you say, to go through all the trouble disassembling it and burying it piece by piece, I mean, I guess it's possible. I mean, it's not an impossible thing to do, right? It's not, we're, not, we're not suggesting they went to the moon. I'm going to need a lot more proof that even such a concept makes even the slightest bit of sense before I can take such a, a theory seriously. And that's where I am with the ship in the swamp thing, right? I know it's a very popular theory, especially with show with the show and its fans, um, but it's just too outlandish a concept for me. It doesn't mean I don't think there's a treasure on Oak Island. It doesn't mean I don't think that anything crazy happened here or that something crazy happened here or something undocumented, right? All of that is still in play for me, for sure, and has nothing to do with the swamp. I think, and, and I say this all the time, we both just need a lot more convincing, right? You and me, Claude, than, uh, than just a few pieces of wood, none of which have I looked at confirmed that it came off a ship. And let's face it, they buried so, so much. Right. They put so many things into if, if they if they really buried a ship, they buried so many things in this in this spot. Wouldn't they be coming up with more than just a few planks here and there? I, I don't know. You know, and remember, they're finding these things right next to the beach. That's where they're looking now for this year. And there's just a lot more sensible explanations for what that could be. 
uh, and why they are found where they are. Um, and yeah, I can always be convinced, you know, and if they dig further in the swamp and they start to find a lot more then maybe I will be convinced. But right now I think what we're looking at is evidence of an old wharf. Um, and I think that's the best way to say great stuff as always, Claude. Thank you so much for being a patron. All right, let's go to our friend, Peter, who writes, enjoy the podcast as you know, but got to quibble over how clear the producer's words mystery solved are we're back to the thing from the drilling down episode or yeah yeah the drilling down episode where the producer says well i'll tell you what he says in just a second let me let me let peter go on here we do not know if he means one particular mystery where is the money pit what is the swamp or the whole shebang who did what and when left how much and why okay peter i'm gonna stop you here and remind you and all of the listeners once again what exactly this piece, this producer said. When talking about new technology that they were showing us in the visual, he said, quote, once they use this technology, it will solve the Oak Island mystery. I'm sorry. That means, in your words, the whole shebang. <laughs> That's it. Nothing else. He didn't say this could solve where the money pit really is. He didn't say this will tell us that there's a vault down there. or There is what he said is it will solve the Oak Island mystery. Any ambiguity you're finding, I hate to tell you, Peter, you're putting it in yourself. Let me, Peter continues. And we do not know if by, sim- by solved, he simply means located or means dug up and inventoried, complete with a written log that answers every question. Again, I have to interject. The Oxford Dictionary defines the word solved to mean find an answer to, explanation for, or means of effectively dealing with a problem or mystery. Just thought that might be helpful. Anyway, back to the email. Suppose the show was about finding Jimmy Hoffa. I could see some producer saying mystery solved because he found a witness or a document without ever finding a body or even DNA or solving the whodunit aspect. Let me stop again. Then Peter, that producer, would be lying. <laughs> Plain and simple, man. And that's all I'm saying. Why are we making excuses for the guy? I, I don't understand. If you, if you don't want criticism for saying you're going to solve something, then your only choice is to either solve it or don't say you're going to, right? Say you're trying to. This is a, this is a technology that might help us solve the mystery that could be the best thing yet brought on the island that would possibly solve the mystery there's a million things he could have said instead he chose to say that will solve the oak island mystery and as i've said a million times from the beginning of this he had the he saw it before it aired months later he knows the result of what this stuff did and he chose to keep that line in when he could have taken it out he could have edited it out they didn't need to see that they edit this stuff all the time right but he chose to keep it in. I just want us to keep that in mind. <laughs> All right, sorry, back to the email. Also, are we sure what the context was? Maybe Maddie Blake asked him specifically about the money pit or the swamp, and editing gives us a wider impression. I gotta stop again. Peter, did you watch it? I mean, go back and watch it and tell me if you think the context is confusing or if there's even a little wiggle room in this. And again, if he felt he was being taken out of context... He could have edited that, and he chose not to. We're making a way bigger deal about this than, <laughs> than, than I than I, I, I wanted to from the beginning. I'm I'm criticizing this guy way more than I think it's important. But anyway, I'll let Peter finish now. Uh, let's hope the Muon technology locates treasure and they bring it up this season. But I wonder if there's enough time for that 
Wouldn't they have edited the show to more focus on compelling discoveries, not rusty scraps and broken boards? Years of junk and, oh, seven shows of showing treasure. Suggest to me it's not completely dug up and analyzed this season, or it's gone. Whichever, there will be a bunch of unsolved mysteries, stuff for further podcasts. Peter from New Jersey. Peter, on that, we totally agree, right? Um. And I and I absolutely understand what you're saying, and 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 I get it, right? And I I just want to emphasize this again. I, I I'm making where I'm making a bigger deal about it than I ever really intended to. I just really made a deal about it to kind of poke fun at the guy because of what he said, right? Which is really quite the claim, uh, you know. And I am 100 percent prepared for the fact that this producer either outright lied or way exaggerated, or I'm wrong, right? But what that ends up meaning, if he outright lied to us or exaggerated, is really up to each of us to decide, right? To judge such inaccuracies or whether it's really dishonesty. I mean, that's that's just my opinion. You can have whatever opinion you want. I appreciate what you're saying, Peter. Um, I just don't agree, and I have no appetite, really, for making excuses for the producer. The more and more I get pushback on this, the less I really have an appetite or really understand why people are trying to answer things for him. He's either right or he's wrong, you know, because he he's the one that put the flag in the sand here, not me. <laughs> he Again, he easily could have fixed it uh, if he needed to. He chose not to. And let me also say this to all of you out there who, who think I'm crazy about this. Again, I, I, I'm making way too much of this than I wanted to, than I ever intended to. Um I really have no expectation that they will solve the mystery this year with this technology. But if I am wrong, I will write that guy. I will find his email and I will write him a full apology and I will attach said email to a future podcast so you can all hear my little meal of crow. Uh, Peter, thank you as always. Uh, Let's finish up by going to one of my absolute favorite cities in all of the world that I've ever been to, Dublin, Ireland, and hear from the very well-named Davey who writes, Hi there, Dave. I watched The Curse of Oak Island, Episode 9, Season 9, The Usual Suspects, The Unusual Suspects, uh, recently when it showed a short clip from the archives of Fred Nolan working in the swamp. I couldn't help but notice all the wooden structures in the swamp that were built for what I assume were the surveying purposes. My question is, could all of the wood that the lads are finding in the swamp be from these structures Mr. Nolan built. I know the C-14 dates don't add up, but what sparked my interest was the trapezoidal-shaped cut of wood just behind Fred Nolan in the photo attached, uh, which I'll put on Facebook for you guys. It's very similar to the piece found recently in the same shape. Do you think it's possible that they are just digging up Fred's work and maybe the dating is wrong somehow? I wonder if anybody else has picked up on that. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work, Davey in Dublin, Ireland. Um, you know, listen, when it comes to maybe the dating is wrong, C-14 dating is an old thing uh, that I know nothing about. I would need a sort of a, a, a more of an expert on this to talk about whether or not such a thing is even possible. I have no idea. Um, my guess is that it's not because it's something that's been used for a very, very long time. But be that as it may, um, what I would say is this. If you see them finding wood, right, a piece of wood, and then you never see it again, never gets followed up on, no testing is done, um, you know, they find like four or five pieces of wood, and then you only get like one C-14 dated and Craig's thing at the end of the show, right? I think the other three (laughs) in this scenario, 
you could just conclude it's something just like you're saying, that it's something that came from Fred's stuff or it dated to something newer or they can tell as soon as they clean it up, right? Um, that's a very good possibility. And I, I think what we're looking at in the screenshot you sent here uh, was Fred's attempt to sort of dam up the swamp so he could drain areas of it. I think that's how he did it. I'm, I'm trying to remember. My, my, my memory of that stuff isn't really very good. Uh, he also, if I'm not mistaken, built a lot of kind of wooden platforms so that he can get into these wetland areas and search around without ending up knee deep in mud. Um, yeah, you have noticed that every piece of wood, you know, that they get here seems to be carbon dated from pre 1795. Well, it really isn't right. I mean, we, we see a lot of pieces of wood that they don't end up carbon dating. And we can also imagine that they're pulling up a lot more than that. Right. And that we're just only seeing these certain things. That's part of the deal here. Um, and in my mind, that's fair enough, right? I mean, do we really want to see, does the average viewer really want to see C-14 dating of dozens of pieces of wood that date to the 1950s? I can't imagine. That would make kind of a boring show to just show all that stuff. So I, I get where they come from. As much as I criticize the editors, we need to kind of thank them occasionally for things like this too, right? Because I don't want to watch all that. Um, so yeah, I think you could be onto something. There certainly has been a lot of work done in modern times before Fred Nolan, really almost none. Um, and it was all done with wood. I mean, the Laginas have thrown big planks of wood in there, too. You've seen them do that over the years. So anything is possible. I, I would really just, you know, remember that you're that the, the team is focusing in on some of these finds. There are a lot more, I think. Uh, I mean, didn't didn't uh, Laird Niven recently say something like thousands of finds? Well, we're not seeing all of that. Right. And we don't know what the rest of those things say. And that's just the nature of the beast. And honestly, uh, again, fair enough. I, I don't want to see stuff that isn't really pertinent either on a show. I'll read about it later, but not on a, a weekly show. Dave, thanks you so much for writing. Uh, keep up the emails. Um, keep coming. Keep them coming, you know. And I'll put that image, like you said, on the Facebook page for everybody to see here. And if you guys have any questions or you want or comments you want discussed in a future podcast, just send, send them along to diggingoakisland at gmail.com. All right, so let's get into the episode here. It's time to discuss Season 9, Episode 11 of The Curse of Oak Island called The Silver Liner. And let me say this before we get started. Man, oh man, I thought this was a great episode. I really did. I don't know why. I just loved it. I, I mean, we had a great crackpot theory session. Uh, we had a great, some really kind of cool finds, a lot of sort of interesting information, little tidbits thrown out here and there. I really enjoyed this one. Uh, anyway, and the last couple I haven't liked as much. The first few of the season I really liked, but this one kind of getting back into it. So I, hope the, I felt the pacing was a little different. I just really, I, I really, I really enjoyed this one. Okay, so let's. They went to a couple different places. Let's start over at lot four. This is the place where they're looking for this hatch on Zena Halpern's map over on the western side of the island, opposite of the money pit. Gary Drayton is metal detecting there along the beach, right, with David and Peter Frenetti, and he finds like a tin can lid and then an old piece of what was obviously copper sheathing that he spots right on the surface between two boulders. I mean, just at first glance, when I saw this, I, uh, you know, I, I thought most likely this was something that washed up on shore, right? Um, meaning it didn't really originate at Oak Island or from anybody on Oak Island. It seems to make a lot of sense. Um, and this is something you would find, right? For centuries, copper sheathing like this was ubiquitous in the maritime world. It was really the only thing 
that could keep bottoms of ships from being destroyed by worms and barnacles and anything else that might get wet, you would you would put it in case it into copper because copper did a great job with that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, when it comes to these barnacles and worms and stuff like that, the marine business is still struggling with that today and still trying, still putting copper in paints, you know, and then coatings and things like that. I worked in that business for a while um, to try and keep barnacles and stuff from growing in the bottom of the ship because of the damage those things can do. So this was everywhere. This kind of copper sheathing was everywhere. It was all over the place. So you would expect to find it here. Now, later on, they show this little piece of copper to Carmen Lake. Curiously, there was another piece they're about to show him that he obviously came to see. I mean, I think they even showed you pointing ears, two of them. Uh, but we didn't see what that other one was. So that might be an example of what we're talking about in the uh, email section about, you know, he might have picked it up and said, oh, this comes from the 1970s. Who knows, right? Carmen concludes that this piece of copper is indeed copper sheathing, but not from the bottom of a ship from the way it's bent. Instead, he thinks this comes from a box, a box that would need to be carrying something very valuable, thus the need for copper. He also says it's very old and could date as far back as the 1100s, but we never get to hear him say what the other end of that range is, which I promise you he said, but just gets edited out. Because um, I would assume, just from what I know about copper sheathing and how it was used and when it ended, that they would use something like this way beyond the 1100s as well. Um, and it never really gets discussed what that is, and so that, that gets a lot of people frustrated, but... I, I'm kind of getting used to it. Now, the narration then goes on about the hatch and the map. And let me just say this. <laughs> they can try and try as much as they want to connect this to Zena Halpern's work, but it is very clear to me that whatever this piece is and whatever it was used for, the fact remains, in my mind, it washed ashore. Probably not that long ago uh, and um, could come from anywhere. You know, uh, it, it's, it's hard to say if they found this buried a few feet down in the back of the swamp or even, you know, if, you know, 20 or 30 yards up the beach or something like that. I find it compelling. Right. But as it is, there's just too little to to know about it, to even think that it has anything to do with Oak Island other than it came from a ship that probably sailed around this general area. And then spent a long time, because of its size, being washed around the seafloor until it ended up on the beach at Oak Island during a storm and got stuck in between those two rocks. Uh, that's kind of what we know, you know, and, and I just don't want to make too big a deal about it from that point forward. All right, before we take a break, let's head over to the swamp. Gary is now metal detecting on the southern edge of the swamp and is joined once again by David and Peter Fornetti. In fact, it goes from one scene to the other when they're there. It's like they're teleporting across the island. They find another piece of flatwood and then another similar um, piece of flatwood later on in the show. Gary says that this one could be from a small boat. Now, this is usually where I say something kind of snarky like, how could Gary know that? He doesn't know where this piece of wood is. But instead of questioning why he would assume that this must be from a small boat and why it couldn't also be from the billions of other things that wood is used to build, this time I'm going to just say, okay, Gary, let's say this is from a small boat. Can we now say that this is evidence of a wharf here and not a buried ship? Because it's either a big buried galleon or it's not. It's, it's, it, 
you wouldn't have a small boat. <laughs> this, you know what I mean? I, I, I've been saying this for a long time. I'm just not seeing evidence of a ship yet. There are no masts. There are no sails. There's no lines. There's just pieces of flat wood. And to me, this can indicate a lot of things. A wharf, an old house, a shed. Um, you know, everything we've seen this year so far points to me towards a wharf, especially since in the beginning of the season, we saw that aerial photo of a possible evidence of a wharf lying just off the beach. So it seems like that's kind of what we're looking at. Here's an interesting point, though, um, just to kind of go off on a tangent. Um, the narrator says, quote, could it be connected to the trapezoidal piece? You know, from the one from last week, the trapezoidal piece they had. And, and, and that's expected because they're always looking to connect stuff. But then Clotworthy says something really very strange. He says it was the opinion of Dr. Ian Spooner that the trapezoidal piece was from an old longboat. But wasn't that Doug Kroll that said that and not Spooner? Guys, check me if I'm right on this. I don't think I'm right. I don't think I'm wrong. I think I'm right. I'm fairly certain it was Doug who had gone to a museum uh, and snapped a few photos of an old longboat and then showed it in the war room. But then they say this. Why would they credit Spooner? It can't be because it makes it seemed more important or something because Spooner's a geologist. He's not a historian or an archaeologist or even a sailor for as far as I know. That's just a weird little thing. I don't know what to make of that. Later on, Gary finds another piece of wood. This one's got a cool kind of square hole in it. I thought this was a cool find. Um, It looked very old at first glance, but as he's looking at it with the guys, Rick and Marty make this very dramatic entrance onto the scene. Marty then announces that they're going to be wrapping up work here in the swamp for the year and then within the next few days. Now, I was waiting for something here about government interference, but happily, we didn't get a single word of that, uh, which is really good. And instead, the main motivation for ending this year's work in the swamp is that they need the swamp's water. They need the swamp to refill with fresh water so they can use that water in their wash plant to clean the spoils in the wash plant from the from the giant money pit cans that are coming onto the island, I think probably next week. I never thought of that. I wasn't expecting that. And it certainly gives you a little insight into what the swamp's really all about and how it is formed. All right, let's head now over to the money pit. Uh, here we see the usual suspects, Terry Matheson and Charles Barkhouse. Uh, they're now digging a hole that I think they said was AB 13.5. Not sure if it was AB, AD. They said it really fast. Anyway, something like that. We could see this new hole now is right on top of that women's memorial that uh, on the very edge of the money pit. Um, for the first few scenes, they were showing us a lot of this hole, even the, the, the samples coming out of the very first few feet. And we never really find anything in those few feet, and they didn't find anything here. It's not their kind of target area, right? And at first, this kind of seemed unusual to me. Like, it was leading me to believe that something was going to happen later on down this hole, like we were building the tension for that. But that would eventually prove to be not the case. Um, Later on in the episode, they're digging that very same hole, and now they're down to their target depth between 67 and 77 feet, and they find nothing so much so that Terry concludes, just like he did in the whole last week, that this was just a miss, right? Uh, that there's nothing here. There's no there's no evidence of anything. It still surprises me how much time they spent uh, in this episode on this 
particular hole only to come up empty. Um, don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining. I actually like to see these misses, you know, I, I, so I can kind of understand where things are and I can remember, oh yeah, well they looked there, that didn't work. And I'm still kind of confused as to why they're angling their holes in these certain areas. I just think the editing hasn't really described that. And I, I think we might get a better feel of that once the cans come in. Anyway, later on, speaking of the swamp, um, or I'm speaking of the money pit, sorry, Marty meets in the research center with Craig Tester and Scott Barlow. Now, Marty has a new theory, talking about the holes that um, were pushing air out of them in the last couple of weeks. He thinks now that there was, his idea was that it must have been coming from a chamber of some, some kind, right? Now he thinks there was simply not really enough air for this to be a real big chamber that would fill up with a lot of air and then compress. And this is kind of where the show works against us a little bit, right? It's hard for us to agree or disagree since we didn't really see much of that. We didn't really see much or hear much about the air and how it could work. We hear a little bit more of it here in his explanation, which is really good. And here we get to know kind of a little insight into Marty's expertise and drilling and this kind of stuff. Um, so I'm willing to take his word on that, that that couldn't be from a chamber. But instead, Marty perhaps uh, thinks perhaps that they actually were hitting here a flood tunnel and that this was sort of a small air pocket that formed from building the flood tunnel. Now, here's what came to my mind when listening to Marty. Remember the seismic said there was a possible chamber, right? But not over here. So why were they surprised about that? Um, why were they surprised to not hit a chamber when they weren't looking for one? And, and how could seismic find one chamber on the other side to the west there, but yet miss one here? I never understood why they thought they were on a chamber and not a tunnel, which is what they were kind of looking for, right? I mean, the whole point of digging over here was because they were searching for the far end of a possible tunnel that started over by shaft 12 and not the chamber. The chamber was on the other end of the money pit. It's strange and it's very confusing really, but I think again, it's the, the, the concept of the editing and not wanting to get too wonky with their explanations for people because it's, you know, it just doesn't make for good TV. Marty says something Really interesting here, though. Um, he says, and these are the things that make me excited about the show, right? He says he's been a flood tunnel doubter forever. And that now he's finally starting to think with this that maybe there is a flood tunnel. I love when they give us these little crumbs into what the guys are really thinking. You're not alone, Marty. You are not alone in thinking that there really isn't a flood tunnel there. I mean, that's a, that, is, that is a popular view among skeptics for sure. Marty then kind of present, presents his theory here of how the air they found in their drilling could be the result of this flood tunnel system and a curve in it, maybe because of a boulder or something like that. It's just a theory for sure, but it's a sensible one, and he would know. He's worked underground for a long time. So now the plan apparently is to keep searching here, not to find a possible chamber, which, again, I'm confused about why they think they'd be fine one there, but instead to find these flood tunnels. And then block the flood tunneling, the flooding, I'm sorry, before the giant cans come to the island and present a problem for that. So the Laginas have now officially joined the centuries-old fraternity of treasure hunters who have tried to accomplish this very same thing, blocking the flooding in the money pit. Hopefully, Rick and Marty and their team get better results than all of those that came before them.
All right, let's finish up with a fascinating crackpot session. <laughs> I feel bad calling it a crackpot session. Uh, researcher Scott Clark is in the war room. To, I just don't know what else to call it besides that. Researcher Scott Clark is in a war room, uh, is in the war room to discuss um, a man by the name of Sir William Phipps. And we've talked about Phipps before here on the show. Uh, Phipps was born in what is now Woolwich, Maine uh, in 1651. That's a town down near the mouth of the Kennebec River. It's a town that I have driven through <laughs> every year for the last 48 years, right? Um, I've a little side note, uh, just on the other side of the river from the Ken- uh, the other, other side of the Kennebec River from Woolwich, is this great little town called Bath. I've spent a lot of time there, um, where they build a seriously cool naval uh, Arley class guided missile destroyers. And I think they also now are working on what's called the Zumwalt class destroyers. There's also a really great maritime museum there uh if you're ever up in maine and you you want to get a kind of cool history of shipbuilding and all that kind of stuff bath maine just across the river from woolwich great place anyway i digress phipps came from extremely humble beginnings back when woolwich was the end of the known world right uh but he went on to live an extraordinary life which saw him become a ship captain, a general, a governor, and a politician. Um, But he was probably best known, at least in the United States, for his role in establishing the court and the sort of the legal framework for what would become the Salem Witch Trials. And in in the interest of fairness to the man, he also brought an end to that court and pardoned the last eight folks who were found guilty and sitting waiting waiting to be executed, right? Uh, so that's kind of his biggest role here. But before all of those military and political accomplishments, um, if that's the right word, accomplishments, Phipps rose to fame as a treasure hunter. In 1687, with the blessing and the backing of the British crown, William Phipps went searching for the wreck of the Concepcion. This was one of the Spanish treasure sh- ships that um, was f- taking Inca or Aztec gold across as, when it was plundered in South America and Central America and taking it back to Spain, right, to, uh, to, to fill the coffers of the Spanish king. In 1641, the Concepcion was wrecked in a storm off the coast of the Dominican Republic. And in 1687, Phipps went and found that wreck and brought the treasure back to England. He delivered it to the king with incredible fanfare and he was knighted. And I believe he was the very first ever native of North America to be knighted. He became quite a celebrity both on both sides of the pond. A few years later, he made a second expedition to the wreck, but this time came back with way less treasure than they thought he might. The idea here is, in this theory, that Phipps kept some of the second load for himself and hid it on Oak Island. Now, I won't get into the rest of it, but this is not a new theory by any means. Uh, It's been around for decades. We'll talk about it a lot more in the future, especially now since it's kind of popped up here. Um, However, Scott Clark does have two new kind of quote-unquote finds, which adds a wrinkle to this theory for sure, a pretty big wrinkle. The first is a letter or some kind of document that says uh, during the time of the second expedition, a man by the name of Belcher, who was a captain and a friend of uh, like an assistant, Andrew Belcher, I think was his name, um, was a sort of an assistant of Phipps. This letter says that he was spotted sailing through Mahone Bay with one of Phipps's ships and that he then burned that ship 
at what this document calls um, Point Liber, which now uh, I don't really know what that is, but I assume what it's referring. He seemed to know exactly what it is. There's a there's a there's a town called called Port Labert in the French. Some people call it Port, Port La Herbert. Um, it's about 75 miles away and from Mahone Bay down along the southern shore further to the west um, the southern shore of Nova Scotia. So I assume that's what he's talking about. So it's not like it's right there in Mahone Bay. It's pretty far away. Um, I think it's also important to note here as we move on um, that this theory <laughs> right, does not suggest that he buried the ship in the swamp, but instead did the sensible thing, <laughs> which was burn it offshore which is the best way to dispose of a very large ship. So anyway, the theory here is that Belcher took part of this, took one of the ships filled with much of this treasure to Canada and to Mahone Bay to hide it from the English king while with his tail between his legs, the new celebrity knight came back and said, well, we only found this much this time. Makes sense. So then Clark then presents a map from 1701 that was published in a book that he apparently owns in 1853. Besides the east coast of North America and much of the Caribbean, this very ornate map shows the Concepcion wreck site and something called La Plata in and around an area where one might find Mahone Bay. Now, the word plata is slang for silver or or lead in uh, old Spanish there. It's fascinating stuff, no doubt. Um, Clark said the map was made by somebody named Herman Mole. Um, He says Mole had very important friends and therefore had privileged information he might have included in his maps. He uses the plural there that he's had important friends, privileged information for his maps. I'd love to see some other examples of these things and who some of these friends are. And if we actually have, um, well, let me say it like this. I have a couple questions. The first is, what is this first document we heard from, we were hearing from, the reports he's there? Where does it come from? What does it mean? Who, who wrote this? Uh, did anybody question it? I really need a little more about that I, in order to consider Belcher a real suspect here. And I guess the other question I have to get back to what I was saying was, who really is this mole guy? Who, 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 <laughs> who is this guy that made this map? And more importantly, what connection or knowledge might he have specifically to Phipps or Belcher and this expedition. And if he was friends with Phipps and Belcher, if they were his friends who gave him privileged information, why on God's green earth would this man include their secret treasure site on his map? It's one thing for the Concepcion site because they had already, they felt they had already cleaned that dry, right? Taken everything that was there. So put the site there. If somebody wants to go see the wreck of the Hulk of the old Concepcion, great. But if what these guys really did was steal some of this, right? Because or at least the king would think they were stealing it. Why would he put it on this map? Gee, some friend. Now, these are the kind of things we talked about this in the beginning, right? These are the kind of things, the kind of questions I need answered before I can really start to dive into a theory and its possibilities. Because in my mind, It makes zero sense to publish something like this on a map, a map clearly not made for a single purpose or or, I'm sorry, a single person 
or for the purpose of navigation. It looked rather ornate. It had a great aesthetic quality to it. Um, there weren't really a lot of navigational aids on it. The scale was kind of small and a little confusing. This isn't a functional map, right? This was this was made for a book, perhaps, or something like that. So why would you... <laughs> just... I don't know. It, 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 it just doesn't make any sense. Now, Clark later connects everything through this Captain Belcher, through his Freemasonry. So um, what he's doing here really is implicating Belcher as maybe the man who who could have hidden this treasure on Oak Island, who could have come up with this plan and not really Phipps. I didn't really get from him whether or not they worked in tandem or if Belcher just did this on his own. I Again, I say this every time we get these crackpot sessions. I know this. We're missing a lot. This guy was in here for hours and we got, you know, four minutes. Uh, and this was a great scene, right? It's an absolutely fascinating theory. It's one that's been around for a long time. I love to see I love to see Clark giving it some new life, right? And adding this Belcher wrinkle wrinkle that kind of really makes it make a little more sense. Um, I'm working on some of this FIP stuff for the podcast in the future um because this really i really enjoyed this uh, and i've been a couple of researchers have reached out to me about this so i'm gonna take a deeper dive in the future i don't know if we'll wait till the end of the season we'll see how this progresses but uh be that as it may let's just pull the lens out a little bit here too uh, again and go to our friend steve who on the patreon during the session says quote wonder when the show will take a theoretical position they bring in lots of theorists but you've never heard the Lagina say, this is our current theory. We just get, well, we're starting to get an understanding of what, of maybe what happened here, but never shared. I mean, Steve, you're right. I agree a hundred percent. They're not focusing on a theory, but here's the thing. You could say the same thing about me in this podcast. All right, that's going to do it for this uh, podcast. Uh, let's just get in some shameless plugs. Don't forget, you can find the show on Facebook and Twitter. Just go to your search bar at Digging Oak Island. Uh, don't forget to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Helps to get the word out on the show. Uh, also, don't forget, if you're sitting around in your car or something like that, uh, on Wednesdays from 2 to 5 p.m., I'm DJing. Uh, on a radio station called WDVR-FM, which is out of western New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. So if you're in that area, you can listen at 89.7. Or you can simply uh, go to WDVRFM.org and listen there. From 2 to 4 p.m., I'm doing a show called The Bourbon Street Bistro, where we play the music of New Orleans. And uh, from 4 to 5 p.m., I host a show called Island Vibes, where we do uh, an hour of music with kind of a tropical vacation feel to it. Uh, don't forget also to please help out the show by becoming a patron. If you think this show is worth $5 to you a month, then head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. And until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Diggin' Oak Island.